Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. So I was excited for today's episode because we're texting about ideas for it and you brought up imposter syndrome. And right away, I thought, yep, we've got to talk about that. Yeah, it came across my mind earlier this week. And I actually think this informs a lot more of my practice than I maybe thought it did. And when I started to think about it more and more, I was realizing how many different interconnections it has to everything that we've been talking about. So I'm excited to hear about your experience with imposter syndrome and share a little bit of mine because I think it's something that we probably all struggle with to a degree and that we don't really talk about much. Absolutely. And it's something that I'm hearing more in the social media space. When I first started practicing, I don't... I think every now and then I would hear it, but not very often. And now I find that coaches and healthcare professionals are really sharing what imposter syndrome is, their experiences with it. And I'm excited to talk about how it affects the way that we practice, because that's not exactly what I see out there. I see the definitions, who's likely to have it, and very little discussion of how that might affect you when you're talking to a patient and you feel inadequate and you don't feel like you have a right to be there and like you're some type of fraud. That would definitely inform your interactions. And just for the quick definition of imposter syndrome, it's basically this persistent doubt that concerns your abilities or accomplishments. And basically, like Monica said, feeling like a fraud in whatever you're doing. So feeling like you're not good enough to be there, you're not doing a good enough job. And it's something that can really impact your feelings about your own work and then also your performance at work too, I think. Yeah. So Sammy, you were reading some interesting articles about who's most likely to experience um, posture syndrome. What did you find? So in my reading about this topic, it seems to be more prevalent in people who are marginalized. So this can have to do with race or socioeconomic background. There was a lot of research on first-generation college students having imposter syndrome. And then also there was some research on women in traditionally male-dominated fields feeling this imposter syndrome. And it seems like that kind of speaks to this feeling of, I don't belong here. And so I must not deserve to be here. Yes, exactly. Which is the key part of imposter syndrome. And you also mentioned that people of color experience this a lot more often than their white counterparts. So that's important for us to consider. When we feel like we don't deserve what we have, that's imposter syndrome. So I think we need to understand that people with imposter syndrome are pretty successful on paper. And that can range, right, from just having your degree all the way up to specialty training, et cetera. Your level of material success does not indicate whether or not you have imposter syndrome. In fact, that's a characteristic of imposter syndrome is that people often appear extremely successful. Yes. And here's the kicker. Because we feel like we don't deserve what we have, we blame it on outside circumstance, and then we work even harder to prove that we can earn the success that we have because we don't feel good enough. But the more success we get, 
if your belief pattern is that it's something outside of you or that you don't deserve it, you never get that fulfilling moment like when you hit a goal and you're proud of yourself and you get to celebrate and you enjoy the moment, you soak it in and then you maybe decide on the next thing to do. No moment is ever good enough. And so even though you could be, I don't know, graduating residency, you will feel like, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. It's just I got away with something. Definitely. And one of the common themes that I discovered in this is that people who advance in their career, as they advance, the imposter syndrome typically gets worse. So the more that they accomplish, their feelings of imposter syndrome intensify. It makes sense because the higher the stakes and the higher the accolades, if you never attribute that to your own hard work or feelings of earning being there, you're always going to be like, oh my God, now I've gotten this far and someone's going to unmask me as a fraud. And it gets more and more intense as you progress through. So there's just no amount of achievement that's good enough. And this is hard. It's hard not only because it doesn't sound like a fun experience. It's hard also because it affects your psychological well-being. And we've talked about burnout on the podcast. This is associated with burnout, these feelings. And it makes sense. I mean, how long can you be driving yourself to succeed and feeling like a failure before you feel emotionally exhausted or before you have to disconnect from what you're doing? Truthfully, I learned about imposter syndrome recently. I'm not sure when exactly. But when I started learning about it, I looked back in my early years as a provider when I labeled it burnout. And now I'm thinking, hmm, I was actually dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome. I felt a lot of times like I wasn't good enough as an orthopedic provider and as a women's health provider. I am a first generation college student, if that has anything to do with it. I can definitely see how that would influence the way I even came into college and PT school. And now I'm looking at it thinking, wow, my early years of practice were pretty hard on me in an emotional way. And again, I, I just said multiple times, oh, I was burnt out. Oh, I was burnt out. And now I believe that I was actually dealing with imposter syndrome and that it shaped my practice in a way which actually took away a lot of the joy of practice, placed significant unneeded pressure on me while working with patients, and fueled a lot of my ambition, my drive, my striving to prove myself, which did result in many stellar achievements on paper, many cool things that I did, which I couldn't appreciate at the time, which didn't really sink in. So it's something I recall a lot in my early years of practice this feeling that I I didn't know what to do with the patient and I wasn't good enough mm. and that worst of all someone was going to find me out whether it was yeah. my patient or another therapist or a manager and it's really draining to practice in that kind of defensive space where you're pretty much always waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah. I'm curious, when you were practicing in your first couple of years, when you remember back, what are the, some of the specific ways that showed up with your patient interactions? Did that change how you talked to patients and, and what interventions you may have even chosen with them? That's a great question, Sammy. So I think it 
shaped this persona that I call like my superhero Sally, where because I felt insecure, I actually went the opposite way with it. I overcompensated and laid it on real thick, so to speak. I kind of think that if my early patients or coworkers were to hear this, they'd be like, you felt like an imposter. You were the vagina coach. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so the number one way that I think it showed up is I really talked about the things that I felt <laughs> insecure with, with a very strong passion. And I think in some ways that was great. A lot of times, though, I could feel the shame internally acting like I was the vagina coach when I was like, oh, my God, what the hell am I doing? Do I even know how to work with these people and treat them? But I was so into it. And part of it is I do have a passion for women's health. So I don't know that we can extricate the two. When it came to patients, superhero Sally, I would pull this persona out especially when I had those tough patients, those people who have had pain for a long time or dysfunction for a long time. They've been to other people where it hasn't helped them. They come see me and I would rise into this. I'm going to be the one to do things different type of space, even at the same time as I was like, what do I do with them? Yeah, like what am I going to do differently from all of these other PTs that they've seen? Yeah, so I think I would probably do a lot more talking and less listening because mm. I felt like I had to win people over and convince them that I did know what I was doing. They say in general, insecurity talks a lot and confidence is more quiet. You don't need to prove everything all the time. So I explained a lot. I'm over explained a ton. I was very sensitive to people's resistance or maybe skepticism, I would say now. I took it personally. I would assume that if they thought the exercise wasn't helpful, what they were saying is you're not a good enough therapist to pick a helpful exercise. That's how yeah. I interpreted it. And then I would want to find the next thing that would help them. And I had to go in deep to that. So I worked super hard with my patients. I think I went over and above. I think I was very identified with their outcomes because their outcomes were my only indicator of success or failure. I never thought at that point in my career, am I proud of the way that I'm practicing with this person? Is this in alignment with what I believe? And I was more like, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that this person heals 100% because if they do, then it proves I'm good enough. And if they don't, it reinforces my fear that I don't deserve to be here and I shouldn't be doing this. And that's an immense amount of pressure to practice on. So that was highly stressful for me. That led me to really personalize a lot of situations, which I was not the main character in. Patients have their own lives, their own journeys to take. And so for me to think that I am the deciding factor in them healing, not healing, fully healing, partially healing, I mean, wow. And I think another way it affected my practice is I was pretty terrified of getting other people's input. I think I would have asked for a lot more help, a lot more one-to-one -one mentoring and counseling from the people that I worked with. And I asked questions. It's not that I didn't, but I know how often I would have liked to bounce a situation off of someone. And I thought, oh my God, if I ask them that, they're going to know. 
they are going to know that I don't know, or they're going to think that I don't know, and then I'm going to be found out. And it's that Mm -hmm. sense of always being on the chopping block. I think that my practice would have been more collaborative sooner had I not dealt with as much imposter syndrome or was able to identify it sooner. So Sammy, what about your experience with imposter syndrome? I've been amazed reflecting this week about how much I am noticing it as a common thread. I'm in my very early years of practice. I'm about a year and a half out of school and I went straight into residency and then went on to another job after residency was done, but I feel like I'm still in some ways in the thick of it and starting to recognize it and work through it. But it's incredible to me, the common threads that you were describing about this feeling of desperation to prove yourself and to not put yourself out there too much that you get discovered. Mm -hmm. There's this weird tension between the two. That's so good. You captured that so well. Yeah, it's awkward because I feel like with the imposter syndrome stuff, There's a part of me that wants the patient to understand what I offer, and I'm trying desperately to get them to buy in, and I'm trying to convince them why this exercise is going to help with their hip pain or whatever they're coming in for. And then on the flip side of things, too, one of the common characteristics of imposter syndrome is also not being able to accept compliments. I can have all of this desperation to get somebody to buy in, but then when I get a patient who's really bought in... And they give me a genuine compliment and they say, oh my gosh, you've helped me so much. I'm like, nah, you're like, you got better on your own. I, I, I can't, it's very hard for me to accept that. And it's interesting because I feel like a thing that's really characteristic of imposter syndrome is this only being able to focus on the negative and ignoring all of the positive. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example from residency. And I think this is an example that might resonate with a lot of students in clinical rotations or new practitioners who are getting mentoring. But I I used to really dread mentoring. I know that's fucked up to say. <laughs> like this is a little awkward to admit, but I it used to be really hard because for someone with super strong imposter syndrome, it was such a stressful situation to be in. I'm trying to simultaneously get this patient to buy into what I'm saying and see me as the expert. But then I'm also in the student role and being observed and getting lots of feedback on what I'm doing wrong. And holy shit, those days were so incredibly hard and exhausting. And it's funny because in this residency, we had extremely supportive mentors and we had three mentors. Monica was my final mentor, but the other two were extremely supportive of me. And yet, as somebody with imposter syndrome, it's just so hard to get feedback. And so... One of the things that I recall when you and I started working together was that I was getting really burned out and I was realizing that I would get a lot of feedback on the things that I was doing incorrectly. Oh, you could have done this technique better or you should ask them about this thing or maybe you could consider doing this. And nothing was harsh feedback or anything unwarranted, but I was realizing that because I was only getting feedback on the negative thing, I would assume that the whole session was negative and that there was no positive nuggets in there that I did well. And so that led to me basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So every single session I'd see a person, I'd completely reinvent the wheel, completely revamp their home exercise program and do a totally new thing. And because I was assuming that, oh, well, everything you did last time is wrong, 100% wrong, you fucked it up, redo the whole thing. So I'd scrap everything 
And then I do something different. And I kept getting this feedback of your sessions seem disorganized. I couldn't get over it because I was like, well, of course they're disorganized because I can't get a common thread because I'm doing everything wrong and I don't know what the right thing is. And I remember this this meeting that we had when you and I started working together and I was so burned out at that point. I was like, I just got to say something. I really have nothing left to lose at this point. Like, I'm just tired. I can't keep going the way I've been going. So I took a little gamble and I told you, which doesn't even seem that bad at this point, but I told you, I really need you to give me a compliment sandwich. <laughs> like, yeah. I need the positive feedback and then the, the negative thing. I need to know what went well and what didn't go well. Because then when I know what went well, I can keep that part and do the negative part a little bit better. And so that that actually worked great. I feel like I'm getting into more of the solutions for imposter syndrome here. But I think that that's a way that it shows up in my practice even still is that now that I don't have that feedback, sometimes if I hear that little voice in my head of, you're not good enough, I'll tend to do that same pattern of, oh, I got to reinvent the wheel. I got to revamp the program, throw everything out. And so I got to really fight that impulse even now. That just really leads to a confusing session for the patient and a really confusing session for the therapist too. So yeah, that's how it shows up for me. I remember that. And you know what? I'm glad you said something about mentoring being stressful. I felt the same way. I also felt that way as a new mentor working with residents. Oh, interesting. It's funny. I never ask you about your side of it. <laughs> oh my God. So you're a resident and you feel imposter syndrome. Everything you said, I felt but there's almost this sense that I am new and I am learning. But then when you're the mentor, there's a sense of I should know everything. Mm. And so you mentioned earlier, the higher up you get in positions, if you're still really battling with imposter syndrome, it just gets worse and worse. Oh, my God. Totally. My first year, probably year and a half, maybe even two mentoring, I struggled with my own imposter syndrome of being a mentor. And so the sense of dread and struggle that went with that. And I'm glad that you shared that. I remember us working together and I remember that one of the things that helped you that also helped me when I had someone do this to me was to say what went well. Yeah. And that was the first thing we would talk about in your mentoring sessions. I would not even allow a clinical discussion to happen until you came up with something. I was like, nope what went well? And you'd be like, da, 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 this didn't. I'd be like, Sammy, something always goes well. What <laughs> went well? I had trouble <laughs> thinking of it. It is so telling, right? Of that imposter syndrome that I had so much trouble thinking of a thing that went well. Like I didn't kill the person. I didn't drop anyone on the floor. That could have gone well. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always thing. And the yeah. funny part is I struggled with that myself being your mentor. I would leave and be like, what went well there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So, I'm cracking up right now. It's just so to funny, say, but... like, it's uh, so much easier to be that support for someone else than it can be to be that voice oh, in yeah. your head. So even though we said you think a lot of negative things, I don't want to give the impression that people with imposter syndrome are just Debbie Downer negative Nancy's because I don't think a single person would meet us and be like, wow. Wow, they're sad. We're both pretty energetic people who start a lot of projects like this podcast and are very friendly. I think are very quick to support others when they're in pain or having a hard time. So just realize that you can support someone else, but it's because you see them and you think they deserve it. I think, oh my gosh, CME is a resident here. Wow, she's doing great. Look at how much she's grown. Look at how much she's learned. And so then you can turn around and look at yourself and be like, well, I don't know anything. So 
Yeah, that's kind of I feel the essence of imposter syndrome in a way. And I think that's bringing us to the most important part, which is, okay, so you resonate with our stories. This sounds like something you've experienced. What now? Yeah, what the heck do you do about it? The first word I can think of is compassion, because compassion is going to directly combat the feeling of not being good enough and the feeling that you have to constantly do more, constantly improve yourself, constantly exceed your own and others' expectations. And it's probably the thing that I believed in the least as someone who had imposter syndrome. I can't be kind to myself. Look at how much I suck right now. What would I possibly let off for? Which sounds crazy when you say it out loud, right? You're like, damn, that's so mean. That is so mean. I would never say that to someone. (laughs) But it was the unspoken dialogue. Oh, yeah. No, you can't let up on yourself. You're already not enough. What the hell are you going to do? So one of the foundational things that started to shift my interaction with my own imposter syndrome was reading a book called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. This book was recommended to me by a mentor. It took me a long time to read it. I did not think this was the answer at all. And when I read the book, I was shocked to learn that compassion helps people perform better. I thought it was that voice in my head that was telling me I had to do more, do more. That was the thing keeping me going, but it was the thing holding me back. When you're compassionate with yourself, when you address your own needs, you address yourself with kindness and you're mindful of your own struggle, you can do what you need in the moment. Just like we talked about with emotional intelligence, you can be there for yourself or get the support or cry or laugh or scream or whatever you need to do. And then you can move on. But when you're in imposter mode, you get harder on yourself, you suppress And you add more crap on top of what you're suppressing. So now you're mad that you feel sad or you're angry that you feel guilty or whatever it is. And you actually make it harder on yourself to function. You're not more productive. The research is clear, guys. There's no room for budging here. People perform better when they are treated with compassion and when they can practice self-compassion. So If your goal really is to live up to your imposter syndrome, you have to stop being so hard on yourself. Monica, 100% agree with you there. I feel like compassion is really an antidote to imposter syndrome. And I find that having an affirmation of compassion, something that you say to yourself or something that you can bring into the session, because for a lot of us that are really in the thick of this, it can be hard to get out of it. But having some phrase that you go back to, like an affirmation, is great. One of the ones that I was taught by a clinical instructor years ago was that you know more than all of your patients about physical therapy. You just do. Mm. There's no arguing with that. Even my meanest, most self-critical self cannot argue with that. I went to PT school. Of course, I know more about physical therapy than my patient does. Duh. I feel like that was something that planted a little seed of you are the expert. This person is coming here for your valuable opinion on what is going on with them. Yes, you may not solve everything, but that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do your best and to give this person the information that they're seeking from you. It takes some pressure off, right? What a compassionate statement. That I feel like you could just play that, what you just said there over and over, and that would be 
so healing and so helpful to any of us on a bad day where we're struggling. And that goes back to we need to connect with others. This is an isolating, lonely experience. You're probably not getting the right amount of support because you don't even think you're worthy of getting that support. Mm -hmm. So more than anything else, you need to find it. And there's different avenues to do that. You can open up to someone if you feel like you have that connection. You'd probably be surprised at how many people relate to imposter syndrome. I have been shocked at the people I look up to who have been able to identify with this. And it's totally helped me feel more compassionate and kinder to myself to think, wow, I look up to them and they're struggling with it. Okay, got it. And once it's normalized, it's less painful. So you could open up to someone, you can open up to someone who's not in your profession. But honestly, I do think that talking to someone in your profession is more helpful because telling my mom about it and having my mom affirm me is kind (laughs) of like, it's my mom. She's not going to tell me that I suck. So, okay. But talking to a a coworker or someone that I felt was more of a peer or even someone I look up to, that was a moment where I could start to believe the feedback that they were giving me. But I also think that therapy is an option. Talking with groups of other providers, but talking with a therapist as well, that can be huge for helping you change this narrative. Absolutely. It's such a shame-based thing. And shame is one of those things that really breeds in isolation. If you're isolated and you feel like it's just you and I suck and it's all me, everyone else is doing great, this is just going to intensify. So reaching out to others is amazing. And in terms of the specifics, I would encourage everyone to actually seek out feedback from people, especially leading in with, hey, coworker, supervisor, whoever, I'm really feeling stressed and anxious about my performance and I can't tell how much of it is me and just being in my own bubble and how much of it is me actually sucking. But I would love to talk to you about how am I doing? How do you think I'm doing? Where could I improve? But also what am I doing well? Because I'm just feeling really unconfident about myself. I feel like any supervisor who heard that, any human person who heard that would be like, oh my God, you're doing fine, you know? You open up that vulnerability and you seek out that positive feedback of how am I really doing? You can get a more unbiased view of, okay, I don't suck at everything. Mm -hmm. There's things that I do well. I'm actually doing just fine. It just puts it in perspective. So I think that feedback is just helpful. I'm so glad you said that because immediately I'm thinking you need concrete feedback. You need very specific feedback. You need to retrain the way that you think about this. So when people say things like, you're good, you're fine, you're doing great, don't worry about it, you're going to automatically dismiss that. And that's okay. People say those general things a lot. So dig a little bit deeper and say, what did you like about it? Or what do you think that I do well? Or what are some of my strengths? And have that conversation because that will actually give you something to think about. And now your brain is getting evidence to the contrary. And we know that's how you change beliefs and you rewire your brain. Yes, we do it with catastrophizing and fear avoidance. And yes, we can do it with imposter syndrome. So you need specific evidence that you are doing something well. And without that evidence, you will keep ignoring what's going on. And your degree on the wall might not be enough evidence for you at this moment. 
So you may need to start small. You may need to build up and start taking this in. And that's what I loved about being your mentor and asking you, what did you do well? Because now you have to come up with it. You can dismiss my words if it's pretty significant imposter syndrome. You could be like, she's lying. She has to say that because she's my mentor. But now you have to say it. You know, it's kind of like graded exposure for fear avoidance. It's like you are starting to say those things. And I saw you bloom and become way more compassionate with yourself. And it became so much easier for you to think of things that you were doing well. And that was excellent. I so enjoyed that process. I feel like it also helped me practice my own self-compassion. But we had trust to start it off. And trust is built over time. and. I can think of a manager I've had who really was that kind of role model for me where she was willing to build trust that we were starting to connect more. And as I opened up with her, she held great space for me to just be okay with the things that I was scared of and I was worried with. And that was happening just before we were working together. So I feel like I had someone help come in and start doing that for me. And then as that started to change, I really think you and I worked together at the perfect time. I don't know that I could have been that kind of mentor a couple of years before, but as she was doing that with me, making me celebrate my wins instead of coming up with this to-do list, she would literally in the one-to-ones be like, what are the things you're doing well and how are you going to celebrate? Because I would be (laughs) like, well, I didn't do blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, your to-do list is too long. How could anyone possibly do this? And that is another step is you need someone to help reality check you. I don't know who that is going to be in your life, but you need someone who can say, you're taking on too much. This is not possible. And that's not to say you can't achieve big things, but if you feel like an imposter and someone says you're doing too much, you're probably doing too much. You're probably not taking care of yourself all that well. So what else could people do? I think just self-awareness. We found this really awesome imposter syndrome test developed by Dr. Pauline Rose Clance. It was something that I took earlier this week in preparation for this podcast. And it was really interesting to see more of the details about what sorts of things are prevalent in imposter syndrome. And I would highly recommend if this is something that's resonating with you, take the test. I went through and I was... I was like, oh my gosh, I scored so high on imposter syndrome. I thought I had it under better control. So it was a good check-in for me to develop that self-awareness. There were some questions on there that I was surprised by, and I found it to just be really interesting and informative. So I would even just recommend starting there if you're curious about this topic. Plant that seed, figure out where you stand. And then I think the other tips that we shared self-compassion, connection with others, and trying to get positive feedback and recognize your own strengths. I think that those are the core foundation of helping this to become less of a factor in your life and your career. Yeah, that test is pretty eye-opening. If you're wondering if this is you, go ahead and take it. I took it uh, probably five or six months ago. And as I was answering it, I could even think of how I would have answered it a couple years before that. Mm. And I was shocked because it helps you start to think about situations that you dread, but it helps you actually put a name to it. One of the items is I dread evaluations. 
okay, that totally explains the mentor situation that we talked about. So the quiz I think is great. And I think the final piece is that probably cognitive behavioral therapy would be helpful. That was part of my own work with a therapist is working through the thoughts, the situations, reframing my thoughts and beliefs about certain situations, which is definitely what we're trying to do. What am I thinking about that situation? How do I feel about the situation? And then how likely is that to happen? Or what is a a better thought for me to try instead and make it something believable? You're not going to go from imposter syndrome to I am perfect and healthy and whole and a great PT. That's a really far jump for most of us if we're really struggling with this. So maybe you go from I'm not good enough to I'm an okay therapist. You know, I did one thing. Yeah, I did one thing well today. I haven't killed anybody. It sounds funny, but if you can believe it, then you can reset your normal and eventually get to that point where you do believe things that are healthy for you, that help you adapt, that help you thrive, that you're worthy, that you're worthy, and that you are good enough. And there's people out there who will really benefit from working with you specifically because of the gifts that you bring to whatever profession you're in. Absolutely. We'd love to chat more with you about this. Imposter syndrome is cured by connections. So if you resonate with this, we'd love to hear from you, hear your stories of imposter syndrome. And you can find us online on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and at Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. We would love to chat with you. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.